Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Richard Hidry uh, for this afternoon or this evening's lecture, depending where you are, or this morning if you're on the West Coast. Um, Dr. Hidry will be speaking about Rabbi Ben-Sion Uziel, and we'll learn more about him. Uh, as the afternoon progresses. Um, Dr. Hidri teaches Talmud at the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Yeshiva University uh, and is a rabbi in the Sephardi Synagogue uh, in Brooklyn. Um, his uh, research and writing has focused on controversy and dialectic in the Talmud. His first uh, book, which was his dissertation, uh, focused on legal pluralism. And Dr. Hidri argued that the Bavli is tolerant of multiple practices uh, while the Yerushalmi pushes for uniformity. Uh, his second book reads the Talmud on the background of Greco-Roman rhetorical education. Uh, one of Dr. Hudri's goals is to bring together the world of academic and traditional study of Talmud. And as part of that effort, uh, he's currently working on a Talmud commentary on selected sugyot um, that highlight the best of academic methodology uh, and present that in a way that's accessible to non-specialists. Uh, Dr. Hudri also runs the websites rabbinic.org, which lists important online resources for the study of Talmud and manuscripts, as well as teachtorah.org, which offers curricula for high school Judaic studies teachers curriculum, I'm not sure, for, high, for teaching and learning, high school right. Judaic studies. Welcome, Dr. Hidri. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure to be here and an honor to be introduced by Dr. Steinmetz. Um, I don't know if you remember, but about 10 years ago, uh, I sat next to you at an AJS conference lunch and uh, on the table, we're talking about the different research ideas and projects. And we came upon one that couldn't be done just by a simple word search. It was like a methodology or, or, or problem that you have to, you know, somehow uh, search the whole entire Talmud and everybody on the table is like, oh, this would be impossible to do. And then you said, well, there's always Dafyomi. <laughs> and that comment stuck in my head uh, and really represents your rigor and your excellence in research. And I stuck in my head so much that during lockdown a few months ago, I actually started teaching Dafyomi. So thank you for planting that idea. Uh, uh, it's a really a, spe a special honor to be here, and I want to thank um, uh, uh, everybody at Drisha who helped to organize this, including Shlomo Zukier and others. Uh, and to speak about Rabbi Uziel, who is one of my personal rabbinic heroes uh, in his view of halacha and his goals for the state of Israel and for Am Yisrael. Uh, so first, a little bit about uh, Rabbi Uziel himself. I'm gonna share my screen with the sources, but uh, you probably have access to the sources on your own if you wanna um, be able to uh, pull them up on your own computer and scroll through them. Uh, so we start with a picture of him. And uh, whenever I see a picture of Rabbi Uziel, I'm struck by his kindly demeanor and smile, but also his very intense eyes. Uh, and I think both those together really represent uh, his, uh, his demeanor and his love for, for, for Israel and uh, the sense of, of peace and loving kindness. Uh, but his intense gaze as uh, his, his wisdom and his uh, scholarly insight. And both those is, are, are, are the elements that he brings together uh, that we're gonna talk about and we see throughout his, his Piskeh Halacha. Uh, Rabbi Ben Sion Meir Chai Uziel was born in 1880 and died in 1953. He was born to families of uh, of uh, great sages on both sides of his family. And I think he felt the weight of that responsibility. Uh, his father told him so. And there's a kind of sad but heartwarming story about his father before Rabbi Uziel uh, turned 13, before his bar mitzvah, his father came to him and said, um, I have a medical condition and 
uh, not likely that I'm going to survive uh, more than one year, but I always wanted to see you married under, under the chuppah. So therefore, on the day that you become bar mitzvah, you're also going to get married. And that's exactly what happened. He had a marriage ceremony uh, with another daughter of a, of, of a rabbi. Uh, they went through with the, uh, with the ceremony and then each went home and uh, they lived in their parents' homes until they were 18. And then they uh, actually got together and uh, had, had five children. So that's a kind of unusual upbringing. Um, also, uh, when his father died, uh, Rabbi Uziel um, was responsible for um, bringing in some of the income to help support the family. And so he had to split his time between study and working. So he had a difficult upbringing, but perhaps it's those very difficulties that gave him the strength and, uh, and courage to do great things uh, in his life. So when he was just a young age of, of 31 in 1911, he became the chief rabbi of Yafo. Uh, then in 1921, he was called upon to be the chief rabbi of Salonika in Turkey. And he returned three years later to become the Chacham Bashi in Tel Aviv alongside Rav Kook there. Uh, he had a good relationship, a good close working relationship with Rav Kook. And that was very important in people seeing that and bringing together the Ashkenazi and Sephardi communities. Uh, and then eventually he became in 1939, the chief rabbi of the mandate of the British mandate and in 1948 of the state of Israel uh, for those few years until his death in 1953. So, um, so this is a, you know, a, a really a long career in service of, uh, of, uh, of Israel. And uh, we can document it through many of his books. I only quoted three of, of the, his many works here. Mishpeteu Ziel is his main collection of Shutim uh, of Responsa, uh, but also Hegione Uziel on, uh, on Jewish philosophy and Drashot Uziel or his, his Drashot on, on, uh, uh, on Pirkei Avot. And many other works is actually a website devoted to Rabbi Uziel uh, in which you can download and read uh, uh, most of his works uh, online for free. So uh, the my presentation I'm about to, uh, to give you is uh, very much based on uh, prior scholars who have uh, researched uh, Rabbi Uziel, uh, including Rabbi Mark Angel, who wrote an entire book about Rabbi Uziel, Svi Zohar, Aryeh Edrei, uh, and, and many others. So I'm definitely indebted to uh, all of their insights. So if there's one, one word we can think of that encompasses so much of Rabbi Uziel's outlook in this Pesach Halacha, I would have to say it's unity. Uh, unity for the people of Israel, especially coming into a new state uh, in, uh, in, in the land of Israel. Uh, so the first Teshuvah is going to relate to the following verse uh, in Tvarim. Uh, so let's explain the verse first, and then we'll see what the question was about. Uh, the Pasuk says, Banim atem Elohechem, You are children of Hashem your God, do not gash yourselves or shave the front of your heads because of the dead. So the simple meaning of this Pasuk is talking about an ancient mourning custom when the loved one dies, people uh, used to gash their, their skin uh, to show their, their, great, their great mourning also. Uh, however, the Midrash adds a, uh, a secondary meaning to it, uh, which uh, is found here in the Sifre, source number two. Do not make factions among the Jewish people. 
Uh, don't make all different groups doing different things, but rather you should be unified as one faction, right? Just as God has his chamber in heaven, so too his vault should be on earth. So just as God is unified in heaven, so too we should be unified on earth. Uh, Rabbi Uzi Alin the Teshuvah, and that's one the first interesting thing about Teshuvah is he doesn't only get straight to the halacha, but he often spends time thinking about why, what, the, what the verse means, why did the, why did the rabbis interpret it in this way? Uh, so a lot of it is some theoretical explanations uh, so that we understand the, the uh, sources. And here he, he explains that uh, while our bodies are, are, are holy and therefore we cannot gash ourselves even in, 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 in mourning, so too as the Jewish people, we are all one body, one body politic. And therefore we cannot allow ourselves to break up into different groups and have, have different practices and customs. So with that in mind, uh, one more source that's going to come up often is this pasuk in Mishle, Shema Benimu Saravicha Va'alti Tosh Torat Imecha, that we should always follow the, uh, the wisdom, the guidance of our fathers and mothers. Um, so that'll be a kind of counter to when can we change and when or should we keep our traditions the same as they were before. All right, so with that in mind, uh, we can read the question. So this was addressed to Rabbi Uziel in 1938 when he was in Tel Aviv. Uh, the chief rabbi by uh, a fellow rabbi also in 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 um, uh, in Tel Aviv. Uh, so and the the rabbi asking the question says as follows: the question has posed has been posed to us. Rabbi Uziel's writing, uh, quoting the question. In our day, with God's help, the Jewish settlement in our holy land has grown and may continue to grow. Our brothers from all parts of the dispersion have been gathered here, each with his own particular customs and prayer and other areas that he received from his fathers and has been accustomed to practice for his entire life. Everyone loves the customs of their ancestors and nobody wants to abandon them. And they noticed that on Sukkot, there are many customs regarding the shaking of the lulav. And uh, here he, uh, he goes on and explains and shows that uh, there are so many different customs. Uh, in his synagogue, you have some people that are shaking the love when they, when, they, when they shake, they start to the south and they turn around with it and others that start shaking to the east and they stay in one place and just move the lulav around. And some people shake it on only twice when they say the pasuk of hodu. Some people say it three times every time they say hodu um, and they shake it in different ways. And so I guess you're just looking around on Sukkot and uh, instead of being a nice formal ceremony where everybody's doing the same thing and that would look nice, you have uh, a, a havoc with everyone doing uh, totally different customs and, um, uh, and, and, and practices. Uh, so, he's, so the rabbi asking the question says, this looks kind of crazy. What, what should we do about this? Everyone prays together in one synagogue, but everyone practices his own custom. This has on the one hand, a good result in that peace reigns. Similarly, they are dividing their practices uh, regarding prayer, additional liturgical piyutim, the recitation of tachanun, as much as possible, each person retains his own custom. These things occur daily without causing outbursts, rather they lead to peace and serenity. So um, the rabbi asking the question says, it is peaceful. Everybody recognizes and is tolerant of each other because they know you came, you come from Morocco, you come from Iraq, you come from somewhere else. And that's why you are practicing these things. You have a Kabbalistic custom, you have a Maimonidean custom. And so we recognize that uh, they're all okay. Uh, so that way they, uh, peace is maintained. And so it's not only Sukkot, but also Tahanun, uh, different communities have taken upon different 
uh, uh, paragraphs in which they say the piyutim, especially around the holidays, uh, are added into the uh, the standard liturgy. Uh, some have more piyutim, less. They say it in different places. Um, but everyone wants to keep what they did in the old country. Uh, so they, you have this mishmash of many different practices, and they're all in the same synagogue. So should we go go ahead and and be tolerant of this, or nevertheless, I feel perhaps we should be concerned about the principle of lotit godidu, that verse that we should not break up into factions. That was the question uh, that was presented to Rabbi Uziel. And you can see how this would be a, a relatively new question uh, because when, when each community was in their own countries, in their own cities, you know, in Poland, in Russia, in Syria, and uh, Egypt. So everybody's doing their own ancestral practices and they don't see or know about each other. It's only once you have this ingathering of exiles from all these different countries in, in such a short time that uh, people are praying together. And now, uh, now this uh, disharmony comes up. Okay, so I'm gonna, most of the source sheet is in English, but uh, this one section I'd like to read in Hebrew with your permission. We can get uh, uh, some of the flavor of Rabbi Uziel's Hebrew, um, but I'll translate. And this is very typical of Rabbi Uziel starting off, not with a halachic source, but with this kind of grand historical and philosophical view. So Rabbi Uziel starts. Ben kol ha-ma'alot ha-mesayanot umavdilot et Yisrael mikol ha-amim. This is among all the great qualities that, uh, that separate and in which Israel um, is, uh, excels above all other nations. The number one quality is is our, our uniformity or, um, or unity around the Torah. This is already an interesting line. I imagine if I threw this out as a poll here, right? I said, what's the number one quality of, uh, of the Jewish people? Uh, you might say a lot of things. You might say we contributed monotheism to the world, our sense of righteousness and tikkun olam, maybe our food or, or a scientific uh, discovery. Um, but uh, I don't know, we're kind of known to be a somewhat contentious people. So I'm not sure if I would have picked this one, but Rabbi Uziel knows what he's talking about. So let's see how he backs this up. This is the essence of our, uh, of our uh, existence um, and, and uh, perseverance. Uh, it's been thousands of years since we received the Torah Har Sinai, and we've gone into many exiles from one country to another. Many uh, pogroms uh, against persecutions against us and the Torah to destroy it or to forge, uh, cause it a, uh, call it a forgery. Here we might be talking about Islam that claims that uh, the Jews have forged our version of the Torah. To change the words or to uh, destroy the meaning. Maybe here he's referring to Christianity who, uh, who uh, reinterprets and misinterprets uh, many parts of the Torah. And throughout all the countries we're in, we, um, we pick up and are influenced by uh, foreign languages and ways. Nevertheless, right, even though under the most difficult circumstances, uh, Judaism has come out 
clean, purified, um, like uh, in a, uh, uh, like, uh, like metal is smelted in a crucible and you get just the pure, the pure silver from it. Uh, so too, all those uh, difficulties have made us only stronger and, and full in our spirit. And all those who try to damage this unit, the unity of the Torah, and then he lists the different factions and uh, sectarians throughout history, the Samaritans, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Karaites, and uh, those, all those false messianic movements are completely gone. And uh, maybe they're just a small remnant of them around, but they have no force. Um, so uh, so uh, first of all, the mention of the Essenes, I think, is quite interesting. He's writing this in uh, what, 1938. This is bef way before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. So why was anybody talking about the Essenes? Um, maybe he knew something about the Damascus document, which was found in the Cairo Geniza, or uh, uh, probably he's reading some the Jewish historians uh, that, uh, that know the Essenes from, uh, from Josephus. Uh, so that I think shows uh, an interest of his uh, in knowing about the, uh, the history of the Jewish people during the second Bet HaMikdash and that informs his knowledge of uh, Judaism today. And I think in this, he's absolutely correct. Uh, all Jews today, um, I mean, you can ask, what about those other denominations as lots of Chilonim and Charedim and Chassidim and all that? And he says, yes, but really all, even despite all the denominations that we have today, Basically, they're all versions of rabbinic Talmudic Judaism. Um, I think if you'd ask him about Chilonim, so these are people that don't follow the Talmud, but the Talmud, that, the halakha that they don't follow is the halakha of the rabbis, right? And, uh, and uh, even people who are more secularized, uh, they, whatever they do during the year, if it's, uh, if it's uh, Haggadah Shal Pesach or, or anything else, it is still one Judaism um, with different levels of observance and different flavors. Uh, so I think he's uh, really very astute in this historical analysis um, that all of these uh, sectarians that really had fundamentally different uh, views and halachic uh, stances um, have not survived. And uh, so in that sense, uh, despite all our differences, we are basically one Torah. Okay, so why is he saying all this? So elaborating on the Midrash, it says that this Torah comes from the one God, and it's appropriate that there be one Torah that derives from one God. And he goes on to say that really this uniform, uniformity of Israel is, testifies uh, to the unity of God, who, uh, who, is, uh, who, is the, who is our shield and our savior. So that's really our strength. It comes from our unity, and without that, we'll fall apart. But with that, we, uh, we testify to God's unity. And so therefore, there is really no higher value uh, to which we should um, aspire in halakha than, uh, than to, have, to have, have unity and uniformity. Okay, that's all the beginning. He didn't quote any halachic sources yet, but now you already see where he's going. And I think this is a key to understanding his, um, his halachic outlook 
first, you have to look at the historical overview, the philosophical, theological, uh, 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 big picture. And only then, when you know where you need to get to and what's needed by the Jewish people, then we can delve into the technicalities of the halacha to see how we can achieve that goal. Um, all right, so I'm, I, I'm, skip, I'm skipping a little. Uh, so he, he, uh, he, he looks in, he looks, he, he quotes all the, all, the, all of the Talmud. He goes into Rishonim and notes that Rashi and Rambam have different reasons for Lotit Kodidu. Uh, according to Rashi, explains that the Torah should not become two Torahs. If you look around and some people are uh, standing and some people sitting and doing different things, um, then people will say, I guess there's two different Torahs because you're not practicing the same thing. And so that will be demeaning to the Torah. According to Maimonides, however, the prohibition is to prevent controversy. This is more of a social reason. Uh, people will want to um, uh, denigrate the other, the other uh, in order to uh, push their, their practice more, than, more. And so that's a more of a social reason. And so he, sh he shows what, what, what would be the differences between them. It might make a difference in, if it's only a custom, not an official halakha, uh, then according to Rashi, it won't look like two Torahs because it's, it's, it's merely a minhag. Uh, but according to Rambam, even a custom, it would be a problem because that will still cause uh, fights and controversies. Okay, after all that discussion, he says, therefore it is forbidden to practice different customs in one synagogue with regard to prayer and anything related to it. Rather, the entire congregation, congregation is required to follow one custom based on the majority. We have already proven that this prohibition applies with regard to the practice in one city. How much more so in one synagogue for beside the prohibition of making the Torah as, appear as two, it can also cause controversy during time of prayer, which is prohibited according to all opinions. Rather, all Jews are commanded and obligated to be unified collective with one heart turned towards their father in heaven. Uh, so there you go. So his answer is, you know, you're going to look around and see people uh, shaking lulav in different ways. Uh, take a vote, see what the majority is. And then the others, the minority has to abandon their ancient custom, even though that's the way their grandparents did it and their parents did it. And I think he understands that that's difficult for a lot of people because they feel like they're not being authentic. They're not doing it in the, in the true way. Uh, but nevertheless, this is a, this is a halakha. He actually proves throughout during the teshuvah that the law of lotit kodidu is midde'oraita, right? It's a biblical law. And so therefore that would certainly override any other customs or rabbinic uh, laws that would get in the way of changing it. From what has been said, we have we learned that it is forbidden to create subgroups, except in the case of Ashkenazi and Sephardi communities, which are different in their customs and are distinctive as particular units. This is also a point of controversy, right? So he's recognizing that people that come from different countries, and so these are like totally different units coming from Ashkenaz or Sephard. But even here, he would push towards uniformity. According to the Mordechai, it is permissible for each community to challenge its custom if they are inclined to change its custom if they are inclined to do so. Since it is permissible, it becomes inherently obligatory to unify. It is important to aspire to this and to pray that the one God will unify all of us in worship to worship him with one heart and one practice and speech and is certainly forbidden because of the prohibition of Lotit Kodidu to add one rip upon another and divide into many groups for Israel will not be redeemed until they become one unified group. So he's proving from the, the Mordechi 
that if one if someone wants to change from their custom to another one, as long as they do so consistently, um, they are permitted to do so. And so therefore, yes, even though we can argue that uh, to have Ashkenazim and Sfaradim as two different Batekinesiyot and each following their own way, uh, nevertheless, since it's permissible to change from one to the other, and therefore the law of Lotit Godidu will override the differences and, uh, and, and, and uh, teach that would be a mitzvah for everyone to change and uh, agree on one practice only. I have written this to teach that is forbidden even in two separate synagogues to adopt different customs and all manners related, relating to Torah and the commandments. How much more so is it is forbidden to do so in one synagogue, which is considered by all to be similar to one court in one city in which half rule in one way and half in another, a phenomenon that is forbidden because of the law of, of Lotit Godidu. It is almost as if to do so would, be, would constitute a commandment that is performed by the commission of a sin, mitzvah haba'ah ba'avera. Okay, so that's the, that's the end of this, uh, um, this teshuvah. And he ends in the, with very strong language uh, that in, in this case in particular, when you're talking about within one synagogue, if someone would say, I wanna shake my lulav uh, um, starting to the south when everybody else is doing it to the east. And he thinks he's doing a good thing because right, he's following the way of the, uh, of the, of the Ari or the way of uh, the community from where he comes from. And he says, I'm doing it the right way. No, it turns out that his mitzvah actually is a negative because it, uh, it was performed by the commission of a sin, the sin of lotit godidu. If that person is the minority, they're actually sinning in a sin midoraita in practicing against what everyone else has done. Uh, so these are really very strong words. And, um, you know, I, I guess something to think about is has his vision, you know, what happened to his vision? If you look, or if, if you go now to uh, a Bet Knesset here or in Israel, wherever you are, right, what, what is the actual practice? So um, I, I, would, uh, I would like to hear more from you about that uh, in a few minutes. Um, but now that we, he know, we know what he says about one synagogue in particular, we can expand the view and ask, what about the, the is Israel as a whole? And here, uh, this relates to the pronunciation of Hebrew. And here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote uh, another Teshubah by Rav Kook uh, as a contrast to what Rabbi Uziel says. So uh, we can think about these two different points of view. Uh, when we think about pronunciation, right, we want to make sure to pronounce, especially when we're praying and saying Shema, uh, pronounce things correctly. Um, but now that we are coming from different countries where we had different pronunciations into the state of Israel, does that change anything or should we continue pronouncing Hebrew the way we were before? So all of this is going to depend on, uh, we're going to need this source from the Rambam in the Mishneh Torah, uh, where Rambam says, when someone's reading Shema, one has to be very careful in, uh, in, in pronouncing the letters correctly. If you, did not, if, you, if you did not do so, you nevertheless fulfilled your obligation to say Shema. So bedi avad, it's okay if you mispronounce something. As long as you don't skip a whole word or change the meaning of the word, it's okay. But uh, one should try to be as careful as possible in pronunciation. What does he mean by this? 
ישמור שלא ירפה החזק ולא יחזיק הרפה. You should make sure, and if there's a דגש in the letter, not to read it as רפה. And if there's no דגש, don't read it as if there is a דגש. ולא יניח הנד ולא יניד הנח, if it's a שבע נח, don't pronounce it as a שבע נח and the other way around, right? So we want to be very careful in all our pronunciations and the vowels and the letters. Okay, that's how, that's what Rambam writes. Now, based on that, Rav Kook, um, says, writes as follows. Uh, in the Holy, in the Holy See in Jerusalem, he's writing this in 1932. He says, in my humble opinion, it appears that uh, the Maimonides holds uh, that even though we established that ex post facto, he has fulfilled his obligation, even if he was not precise in the reading of the letter, it is fully required to be completely precise in reading so that the expression will be full and perfect in accordance with the grammatical principles and, and so on. Based on this, we can discuss situations in which a group's accent is different in the pronunciation of the letters. For example, they pronounce them in a manner that is different from others. For example, the Yemenite accent pronounces certain letters with a unique accent. From all that has been written, it is clear that there is no possibility to change from one accent to another because such a change for those who have a tradition of another accent is considered a general reading, meaning less precise, but not midaktik for uh, reading for those letters, right? In other words, if someone uh, is a Yemenite and they uh, make a distinction between uh, a gimel and jimel, uh, and so now if they would change and pronounce all gimels as guh, so now they are reading less precisely than they are used to. And that would be a violation of Rambam's principle that you should make as many distinctions as possible uh, so that to be more precise. In particular, a change from the Yemenite accent, which has been a tradition from the earliest generation and which is known to be the most precise among the accents is certainly forbidden. And even though the practice in Israel is to give preference to the Sephardi pronunciation, this is because it has a particular pleasantness and beauty. Nevertheless, the essential advantage of a particular accent is its preciseness in distinguishing between letters and vowels. In this regard, the Sephardi pronunciation is not even on the level of Ashkenazi accent. And certainly the Yemenite pronunciation is more com commendable than all others since it distinguishes greatly between every letter and sound. So, right, he's recognizing that in the modern state of Israel, uh, after all the discussions about what will be the national language, it's the Sephardic pronunciation that is won out. It's not exactly the Sephardic pronunciation from, uh, from Middle Eastern countries. It's a little bit more of a watered down version. Uh, most uh, is modern Israeli Hebrew does not distinguish between uh, gutturals, aleph and ayin, he and het, uh, but they do put the accents on the, on the right place most of the time. Uh, so uh, so people, that's what people have adopted in the street. And so it has a certain pleasantness and beauty and everybody can, uh, can gather around that pronunciation, but that Sephardic pronunciation does not distinguish between um, all the differences that an Ashkenazi accent would. For example, Ashkenazim distinguish between Kamatz and Patach, between uh, um, Sereh and Segol, whereas the Sephardim do not. So therefore, he has a kind of hierarchy. The Yemenite is the most precise accent, so Yemenite can change to anything else. Then Ashkenazim are second best, they can't change. Um, and then the Sephardi ac accent, which is um, which is the most common, but it lacks many of the, of the distinctions. Okay, I mean, uh, what he's saying is, is true. I would add that the Sephardi accent, accent actually does distinguish between some 
things that Ashkenazim don't. So uh, it, uh, each, each accent has their own distinctions and own, own benefits. And for that reason, he says, no one is allowed to change from one to the other because that would be going down a level. And uh, I, I, don't, I guess he's not imagining that everybody's all, all of a sudden gonna change to uh, speaking Yemenite. Uh, that, that would be quite difficult to do. So he says, since the tradition of an accent is no less important than any other religious training, every community is thus required to fulfill the guideline of do not forsake the teachings of your mother, right? That's that verse I quoted from uh, earlier from Michelin, just that as it, apply, it applies to matters of ritual and family life, whether it means lenient or strict, heaven forbid that a person breaks away on this matter for ancestral traditions are the fulfillment of a holy Torah. Ask your father and he will tell you. Um, heaven forbid that those fulfilling a holy duty should change from pronunciation that is precise and accept it from olden days to another one. And you should not learn from the fact that others have done so because that, well, that was not the will of our sages. Okay, so Rav Cook, a great mind, great leader, uh, is saying that everyone should keep the, uh, the same pronunciation that they learned from their parents. And here's a picture of just some letters in the, in a, in a, in the archive of, uh, that people have written to Rabbi Uziel from lots of different places. All right, Rabbi Uziel is now responds to Rav Cook's learned argument. And uh, he begins again with a historical overview, right? I can imagine you know, someone asking a question. Every time someone asks a question, he says, well, let me go back to, uh, to the year 70, and, uh, right? Um, so he says, the return of the exiles to the land of Israel, which was re has reawakened in our time through the grace of God, the rebirth of the Hebrew language as the spoken language of the Jewish people who live in Israel, in addition to being the language of the Torah, having previously been divided into many and varied exilic dialects and different pronunciations has raised a very important halachic question regarding the creation of a uniform language also in pronunciation, right? So already from there, you can see where he's going with this, right? One of the greatest miracles of the rise of the state of Israel, in addition to the military miracles and political and scientific and all that, is the fact that we uh, revived the Hebrew language from a language of only study and prayer to a real life live language. Um, so that's something that within halacha, we have to recognize is a new, uh, a, a new phenomenon. So this question was resolved without difficulty when it was posed in the marketplace and educational institutions with the adoption of the Sephardi pronunciation with some slight modification as the language of communication and learning, right? This uh, has already been settled out in the streets and uh, the modern Israeli Hebrew follows more or less Sephardi pronunciation. However, when the question is raised regarding to commandments and obligations, um, as like reading the Torah and Shema and prayer and anything else that is, has to be said according to the law in Hebrew, we cannot simply agree on our own to do right, whatever sounds nice. We have to look into the halachic sources. Okay, so he's recognizing this, this two ways, these two tracks, right? You have to look at the, the bigger picture of what's going on in his history and in the real world outside, but we can't just then do whatever uh, the, 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 the trend is, but it has to be based on halachic sources, which is, is what he does now. Dr. Hitter, you, uh, we have a, can I interrupt with a question? Of course. Okay, uh, Gela is asking uh, what, what one uh, does if the change was already made by your ancestors. Uh, she's saying that her uh, father uh, taught her the pronunciation that is not the same as his father. Right. Uh, yeah, okay, that's a fantastic question. Um, and I mean, most of the time people continue whatever pronunciation they grew up with because when, when, when they're a child, it's, a, uh, it's kind of difficult to change um, what's pronunciation mid, 
midway. Um, so, you know, most likely in that, in that case, you would uh, follow whatever your father did. Um, although sometimes people find out, oh, you know what? I actually had an old tradition a different way and, uh, and like that better. Um, this is what's really going to complicate this question uh, nowadays, because in Israel, um, if you just go to any random person in the street, you'll find that, you know, they're half this, half Yemenite and half uh, Polish and half Russian and half uh, is Israeli for uh, 10 generations, right? Um, so there, there's uh, so much in, uh, in intra-intermarriage um, and people are studying in schools together and going to the army together. Um, my, my guess is in a couple of generations, the entire Ashkenazi Sfaradi split is, uh, is going to be much less important. Um, I guess I'll, I'll just for myself, uh, an anecdote about that is a few years ago, I became one of the rabbis and chazanim in the Spanish Portuguese synagogue. Uh, and they have very different pronunciations uh, and tunes and customs. And so in order to be chazan there, I had to learn uh, not to say ayin, but rather to say ngayin, um, you know, which is the, the farthest back down the throat that the Western Sephardim could get uh, to say that guttural. Um, and, uh, you know, you uh, ends up sounding funny for a while, because especially if you have to say things like, right, Mikol Adam, it could be a problem. It sounds like you're saying Moshe was the greatest thief uh, rather than the most humble. Um, but, you know, with a little training, uh, you know, I, I did learn that pronunciation, and I was proud to because um, my, uh, my grandmother uh, traces her, her, her line from, from Spain. And so I definitely, I do have some, some lineage from Spanish Portuguese. Uh, so that's uh, exactly a question. So I didn't feel like I was being inauthentic even though it's not the way my father and grandparents uh, spoke. Uh, it is something that was within my tradition. Is there something beautiful about having all these ancient traditions and alive and you can go to different synagogues uh, and, and hear those distinctions. And so it's not all, it's not all uh, sandwiched and, uh, uh, to become the, the same lowest common denominator. So um, that's definitely a fantastic question. And uh, you know, I'd love to, love to get back to that and hear more of your, of your thoughts about you know, where, ha, where we have gone since Rabbi Uziel wrote this and where do you think we should go? Um, but, but let's go back and uh, uh, to his, his view and how he proves his, uh, what he's going to say. So he's quoting the Mishnah, which actually is the basis of the Rambam that we read before that says if someone reads and is not precise in the letters, he still has fulfilled his obligation, b'diavad. We can infer from this that if he does not swallow an entire letter or change the accent to the degree at least to a mistake in its meaning, does not fall into the category of imprecise reading of the letters. And we do not even require him to change his pronunciation a priori lechatechila. For if so, what, what about the Ephraimites who could not pronounce the letter sheen? Uh, what would they do? Or people from Haifa and Baishan in the times of the Talmud they did not distinguish between Aleph and Ayin in those cities. And yet they were able and permitted to go ahead and pronounce and say Shema according to their, their pronunciation. And if it is true with regard to changing letters, even more so regarding vowels. Therefore, from what has been said, we can conclude that the law is clear that changes in pronunciation do not cause a reader to have not fulfilled his obligation, even if we assume that he erred in his accent since everything is determined by one's inner intent and the light of the matter. Thus, anyone who reads and is careful to read properly in the accent to which he is accustomed or which he chooses has fulfilled the obligation. And anyone who's precise regarding 
uh, with regard to one accent or another, because he believes that it is the correct and desirable pronunciation, should not only not be punished, but is suitable to receive a reward from God who does not withhold goodness from those who go in innocence. Right? So this is a very, very different way of viewing the matter. Uh, Rabbi Uziel is uh, kind of thinking that, sorry, Rabbi Rav Cook is thinking that there's one ideal way to pronounce when the most distinctions is, is the best. The Yemenites seem to have that. And if you're going to deviate at all, you're probably going to deviate to something worse. Therefore, no one can change. Uh, so because he thinks that there's uh, one absolute ideal, he, uh, he, it ends up having, you're going to end up having to tolerate pluralism of practice. Whereas, I, you know, paradoxically, Rabbi Uziel is the opposite because he thinks it doesn't really matter how you pronounce it as long as you're consistent in the way that you pronounce it so that you understand what you're saying and those around you, if they also speak the same way, will understand what you're saying, then that's perfectly fine. And no one forced the people in Haifa to not pray or not be chazan because they couldn't say the, 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 the letter ayin. They were chazan in their place. And that's perfectly fine. So for them, since any, any pronunciation is fine, therefore, someone who wants to change their pronunciation because they did some research and they find out, you know what? I think the Iraqis have the best pronunciation and they want to change and do that. Not only is it uh, permitted, that would be a good thing to do. That would be a mitzvah. So more about the, uh, the people from Haifa. Uh, in the Talmud Yerushalmi, however, this Mishnah is read as follows. We do not allow the people of Haifa, Baishan, and Tivon to lead services because they pronounce the He and the Het and, uh, and the letter Ayin as Aleph. And if their language is arranged, it is permissible. My humble opinion seems that the explanation of the Jerusalem Talmud is that if the language is arranged vis-a-vis -vis those who hear him, that they also speak like him, then that person can be a Chazan because they all speak like him. And then that would be a precise reading for them. So that's, that's totally um, allowed and you don't need to ask them to change. And this leader is precise in the language and pronunciation of letters and vowels according to that precise of that place. According to the Knesset HaGedola, uh, also ruled in the name of Radbaz, that if all the people uh, of the people in his city speak in that manner, it's permissible to appoint him to lead the services. We can infer from this in our case that since the language spoken in schools and in gatherings of the people is in the Sephardi accent, a phenomenon that is spreading not only in Israel, but also in diaspora. Uh, I'm not sure how many times he's been here. Um, it is permissible to appoint a prayer leader who speaks and reads with this accent so that his reading be understandable and pleasant to his listeners, right? So in other words, we're not in the old country anymore. We're in Israel where everyone in the street throughout their lives are speaking in the Sephardi accent. Therefore, the one that is most consistent with what they hear and what they understand all day long is the Sephardi accent. And therefore, that is actually the best pronunciation for them to recite the Shema as well. And it doesn't matter if by doing so, they might be losing out on some distinction that they would have had in Ashkenazi or Yemenite accent. And it doesn't matter, right? Because the, the best accent is the one that is consistent with what you hear and what you understand uh, best uh, throughout the rest, of, uh, uh, the rest of your day. Therefore, amazingly, the change that was made in the street, in the public, by secular and a mixed society will have an impact now on halakha because that's what we speak in the street. It appears to me, in my humble opinion, that this does not violate the principle of do not forsake the teachings of your mother since 
changing the accent is, in this case, is not by desire, but by necessity, because of the fact that the general public has willingly adopted the use of the Sephardi pronunciation at home and in the street, and particularly in public, at public gatherings. This necessitates a change of pronunciation in the synagogue because it is impossible for a person to change from his regular, regular daily language to a different language pattern during prayer. All right, so I know, what do you think if, if uh, those are, who are in Israel or have been to Israel and gone to uh, different synagogues and shtibals, um, uh, has this happened? What, what do you find? How, how, how are people pronouncing uh, Shema in synagogues? Um, I don't, in, in my experience, uh, uh, which is mostly going to Datilomi, uh, whether it's Fardi Ashkenazi, I find that uh, generally the accent is according to modern Israeli Hebrew um, accent, right? But uh, probably in, in Hasidic uh, uh not so. They might be speaking uh, modern Israeli Hebrew in the street, but they would not do so for study and prayer. Can right? I say something? Right. That's definitely true in Jerusalem. They talk about the Hebrew that they'd use in the synagogue as Lashem Kodesh, and it's not the same Hebrew that they speak on the street. And they right. can give you a conversation where one line will be in Lashem Kodesh, and the next line is in regular, uh, you know, what we would consider Sephardi Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. Can I add something? Mm -hmm. Yes. As an Israeli, maybe I uh, I was switching to Hebrew, <laughs> but I think uh, we should have the idea that in Israel, especially I think in the Datilumi, if you are from East Europe or you follow Ashkenazi, you are Galuti. And if you follow the Mizrahi Sfardi, you are authentic. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's rejection of Galut and Jews from Yemen are not Galuti. Like if you come from Ethiopia and you are not Galuti, you're authentic. So calling children not Yedidia, but Yedidia mm -hmm. is uh, not being Galuti because in Ashkenaz, you know, in Yiddish, they said Yedidia. So right. God forbid you should be Galuti. I think it has to do with this Israeli mentality just in the background. Mm -hmm. Right, okay, very, very interesting. Thank you for adding that. And I think what happens in Israel spills over to, uh, to Galut as well. And uh, probably here, most of our um, modern Orthodox Datilomi schools, uh, the teachers are pronouncing in modern Israeli Hebrew um, when, during, during instruction and uh, probably in the Haredi and Hasidic uh, communities, they're uh, using uh, more of a, a Yiddish and Ashkenaz pronunciation. Um, so, um, uh, anyway, Dr. Fedorina, yes. I, I had a question. There's an ellipsis here in your translation, so I wasn't clear. Is he saying it's permissible uh, to have a Shliach Tibur who is pronouncing in the sort of mainstream uh, Sephardi pronunciation, or is he saying uh, that that is preferable? In other words, is, is he advocating that everybody adopt this one way of speaking that, that, that is familiar to everybody? Or is he saying, if you want to do that, it's fine, but it's fine to keep your own? Well, this ellipsis here, I think it was talking about in Talmudic times, it was perfectly fine for someone in Israel. Sorry, that, the, probably the later ellipsis. Um, who speaks and reads an accent so it's that it's to a, be understandable. I think, you say, I think he would say it's, it's preferable. Preferable. Yeah, because that everyone everyone understands that way. Thank you. Um, okay, so I guess we can see that Rabbi Uziel's vision has uh, been uh, uh, half enacted, um, but uh, you know he, he's ahead of his time in many ways. So we'll have to see uh, in in the future how things play out. Uh, but now uh, to the next topic, 
which is very much related to his view of unity. I guess you know, in the previous example, he wants everybody to speak in a Sephardi way, so you can accuse him of, uh, of uh, just being a Sephardi elitist. Uh, but he was not. He was consistent in wanting uniformity, whichever way that meant, um, just always following what uh, the, you know, the best practice, the best of, best of both, both worlds. So when it came to Yibum and Chalitza, uh, which uh, you know, happens, uh, and uh, if, a, if a man dies without children, uh, and then the obligation is on his brother to, take, to marry the widow, um, in Ashkenaz lands, uh, the, this was not done. Instead, chalitza was done, was performed in order uh, to separate the brother-in-law and the widow, and the widow would go and marry a, another person. Uh, whereas in Sephardic lands, um, people chose and often actually performed dibum. In some cases, the, the brother, the last living brother, might be married already, uh, but in those lands, polygamy was sometimes was was permitted. Um, and uh, even if not, this was a custom that was done and uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. So now when we come to the state of Israel, uh, should there be different practices, different halachot, or should we try to make one, one uniform? So here, this is written by both uh, Chief Rabbi uh, Yitzhak Herzog and Rabbi Uziel. And this, is after, this, is, this would be after 1948. So they write, in most Jewish communities and in Ashkenaz communities in the land of Israel, the communities have taken upon themselves a settled law that chalitza takes priority over the mitzvah of marrying of, of Yibum. Even when both man and woman want to go through with the leveret marriage, they are not allowed to do so. And in situations where the leveret is already married, the practice in all communities is not to allow the leveret marriage to occur. Given that in our days, it is clear that most leveret marriages are not done with the pure intent to fulfill a mitzvah, uh, by which he means that the intent should only be to uphold the name of the deceased and have a child uh, that would continue and inherit. Uh, but nowadays, people have other, other intentions. Uh, um, uh, maybe they uh, are attracted to their sister-in-law, and that's their main reason, and not only for the, the sake of uh, doing chesed for the deceased, and for the sake of uh, ways of peace and unity in the state of Israel, so that the Torah may not become like two Torahs, right? That was the language of Rashi explaining Lotit Kodidu. We hereby establish for all the inhabitants of the land of Israel and for all immigrants who may, who, who may uh, make Aliyah from this point forward, that is completely forbidden to perform the mitzvah of leveret marriage. All are obligated to perform the act of chalitza. A leveret is obligated to support his brother's widow in accordance with the ruling of the rabbinical court until he performs chalitza and exempts her from the leveret marriage. Dispensation to permit leveret marriage against this prohibition can only be given under special circumstances at decision of the expanded council and the signature of the chief rabbis of Israel. So a couple of interesting th things is that in, in the end, he does give an out, right? Maybe there's some case that can come up in which a, uh, it would be appropriate to perform yibum. So there is that possibility for exceptions. And the second to last line is very important. What happened uh, sometimes, unfortunately, is that Khali, the, uh, the, um, uh, the request of a chalitza uh, turned the woman into an aguna type of situation uh, because uh, this widow is not allowed to marry anybody else before Chalitza happens. And then the brother who might be a nice guy who might not be such a nice guy uh, will say, oh, I, I want you to, I, I, I want to do Yibum. And she'll say, yeah, but I don't want to marry you. And so now he'll give her our time and might use that to extort money from her or other demands. 
And so it led to a, a really terrible situation. And so therefore, uh, part of this Takana said that he has to pay her uh, um, a certain amount of money, he has to support her during that time since she can't go mar and marry anybody else. And so he's responsible for her. He's gonna have to pay her support until he does chalitza. So therefore it's kind of like the way the, uh, uh, the, the rabbinic prenup works uh, nowadays. Uh, so this would prevent people from uh, withholding the chalitza. And since no one would do the boom anyway, so this resolved a number of problems, uh, including the uh, helping the woman in that situation and also bringing a sense of uniformity. Um, and probably also uh, the strangeness of yibum in the modern world, and especially when people are not doing it with intention only for the mitzvah. So I think this was a, a great um, uh, bold move by the chief rabbis to come together. Uh, this was rejected by Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. So I bring this again as another, an, another contrast. To, um, it's interesting to see one posik, but in isolation, you can't really appreciate where they are unless you see the other forces that are, that are arguing against them. So Rabbi Avadi Yosef says, in my humble opinion, it was incorrect for Rabbi Uziel uh, and the other Sephardi sages who collaborated with him to support this agreement, which completely negated the commandment of lever marriage, right? There's a mitzvah in the Torah, now you're just throwing it out. And the concept of lotit kodidu does not apply to this. Uh, since every community follows its original practice, it is like two courts in one city. Talmud makes that distinction. If you have two different courts, even in one city, right, then um, it's permitted. Only one court, when half the people and half are, are all fighting, then it's a problem. That would be like one synagogue, which was his opening, uh, the opening case. And that furthermore, each community is considered like a city unto, uh, unto itself. So even if the, both communities are living together, since they came from different cities, we consider them like two separate entities. Since the members of one community cannot force their opinion on the members of another community, that which the members and presidents of the chief rab rabbinate wrote uh, in, uh, in the above quoted agreement, issued a decree forbidding Yibum, completely requiring Chalitza for the sake of peace and unity, that the Torah not appear as two Torahs, that was a quote of what they said, with all due respect, they exaggerated in this and their words are completely inaccurate. For it is a daily occurrence in various rulings, such as the laws of ritual slaughter uh, and other rituals, that there are differences between the Sfaradim who follow Shulchan Aruch and Ashkenazim who follow the Ramah. And the same true is regarding uh, other things, pronunciation, Torah, Tefillin, Mezuzot, the way they're written, uh, and so on and so forth. And he quotes Rav Cook on his side here as well. And he concludes, he, by the way, quotes, do not, do not forsake the teachings of your mother, right? This is a, uh, a, a common phrase that's used uh, against Rabbi Uziel's vision. And he says that Rishon Nesiyan, Rabbi Uziel, suggested because of his great compassion for the unity of the state of the nation and the removal of barriers separating the communities to waive the Sephardi standards for ritual slaughtering, right? So this was another matter in which Rabbi Uziel said, we should have one standard for ritual slaughtering. Um, and, and that also, he, he said, we'll all follow the Ashkenazim. And to create a uniform approach to ritual slaughtering in Jerusalem and agree that the Sephardim would accept the Ashkenazi customs. It seems that with regard to the agreement of the prohibition of leveret marriage for Sfaradim, Rabbi Uziel continued his approach because of his great passion for in the unity of the nation. Great is love, for it destroys regular patterns of behavior. 
In truth, it would be regret, reg, reg, regrettable to nullify the rulings of our rabbis, the authorities in this generation, and the greatest of Sephardic rabbis for the perception of national unity. So on the one hand, he's praising Rabbi Uziel for his intention, right? You have, uh, uh, I know you mean well, but uh, this is, you're not really getting unity out of this. Oh, I think what Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Vadia feel, feels like is that the Ashkenazim are simply being dominant, right? Because in, in one, one area after the other, because they are the majority, because they uh, hold some seats of power, what's going to end up happening, happening is that unity means that the Sfaradim give up on all of their uh, practices, customs, traditions, and uh, end up having to give in to um, and become Ashkenazim. So Rabbi Avadja Yosef, I think, is coming from um, a, a, different, a different approach altogether. Um, he was a unifier as well, but in a different way. He wanted to unify all of the Sephardic uh, communities. So he didn't want to have some people following Ben Yishchai and you know, something with the Iraqi and Moroccan customs and Syrian customs. And you know, this, would be, uh, this, this would be untenable to have in one country. So he's sensible to that. And therefore he says, since we're in the land of Maran, Rav Yosef Kara, we should all follow Shulchan Aruch and abandon your ancestral traditions. A lot of people were not happy about that. Uh, that people that came from uh, prior customs. So there is uh, some similarity in that sense. Um, but Rabbi, I think Rabbi Avadi Yosef was um, extremely successful in unifying the Sephardim. And uh, by, by doing that, however, he created a stronger counterweight to um, Ashkenazi dominance. And so that's, you know, he felt uh, Sephardic pride was more important than nas national unity or the perception of perception of national unity. So that's the, that's the counter argument to Rabbi Uziel. And uh, again, when, my, when we're done, I'd love to hear your feedback and your thoughts on uh, which vision has won out or which vision uh, do you wish uh, would or will win out in the end. Um, okay, this is a fantastic picture of Rabbi Uziel uh, speaking uh, at a, a rally against the British white paper. Uh, so, you know, just uh, to remember, in addition to all of his halachic activity, he's also very, very involved in, in uh, political activity and uh, helping the, uh, the not yet formed state of Israel. Okay, and in, uh, in that regard, uh, a really practical question came up. Well, this is written in 1920, so uh, still, still before there was uh, voting for the state of Israel, but um, I suppose there was some voting in the uh, early Zionist uh, Congresses. And the question is, uh, should women be allowed to vote? Um, all right, 1920, this, I mean, in other countries also, this is still being, uh, being discussed and debated. Uh, that's one question. Second, are women allowed to have a position of uh, political authority? So regarding this, um, I did not quote Rabbi, Uzi, Rabbi Rav Cook. Rav Cook here says, no, women should not be allowed to vote, right? This is not, the, uh, this is not uh, our way. Um, uh, the, uh, he wrote that uh, political authority belongs to men and uh, women have a more are in the private domestic domain. Um, it can lead to fighting. What if the man wants to vote for one and then the woman to, for another? It'll lead to fighting in the household and there won't be shalom bayit. And then if they go to vote, right, they're going to mix together in the voting places uh, and that will lead to all kinds of uh, non-sneous activity. Um, so Rav Cook was against it. Rabbi Uziel disagrees. And uh, here's just a little snippet of what he writes about this. He says, we find no clear 
uh, ground to prohibit this. All right? First of all, there's no absolute, doesn't say anywhere that women may not vote. I mean, you know, if Halakha said that, then what can, do we, what can we do? We don't just follow uh, whatever we want, but there is no actual prohibition. And it is inconceivable that women should be denied this personal right. For in these elections, we elevate leaders upon us and empower our representatives to speak in our name, to organize the matters of our issue, to levy taxes on our property. Uh, the woman, whether directly or indirectly, these representatives and obey their public and national directives and laws. How can, how then can one simultaneously pull the rope from both ends, lay upon them the duty to obey these elect, those elected by the people, yet deny them the right to vote in the elections, right? No, no taxation without representation, no legislation without representation, right? They are, they are, they need to follow the laws and pay the taxes, and yet they have no say on what those laws should be. So it's just logical. You don't need a source for this, um, that women uh, must have a say in the, in the laws that affect them. Furthermore, if anyone should tell us that women should be excluded from, from voting public because their minds are flighty, da'atan kalot, uh, which is uh, something that others have quoted. And they know not how to choose who is worthy of leading the people. We reply, well then, let us exclude from the electorate also those men who are da tam kalot. And such, such people are never lacking. Okay, I think it's actually a good idea. Uh, maybe there should be some kind of a, some kind of a, a test before you go and vote, right? Some, some kind of aptitude test. You need to get at least a certain, uh, certain grade on your SAT before you can vote. All right. I would be in favor of that. However, reality confronts us clearly with the fact that both in the past and in our times, women are equal to men in knowledge and wisdom, dealing in commerce and trade and conducting all matters, personal matters in the best possible way, right? So therefore it's impossible. They're just now just envisioning what the state of Israel will look like. And uh, Rabbi Uziel sees that obviously women uh, must be allowed to vote. Um, he continues and talks about women uh, get having uh, political um, uh, authority and says also there a woman can be a politician, a judge, um, and as long as the people are willing to accept it. And so uh, since it's a democracy and people are voting, uh, therefore, um, therefore by voting a woman to be, uh, to be whatever uh, position it is, they will have uh, therefore given their consent and therefore halakhically it would be okay as well. Um, okay, and uh, uh, finally, we'll talk about the issue of conversion, um, which is uh, Rabbi, Uzi spent, uh, Rabbi Uziel spent a tremendous amount of time uh, on. He has about uh, three dozen teshuvot um, about the issue of giur. And um, I, I wrote a, a paper on this. If anybody's interested, I can send this. I can send it to you. Uh, so we have, here's one example of a situation that, comes up that, that came up before him and uh, unfortunately comes up often is you had a, um, a man married to a non a Jewish man married to a non Jewish woman and they had children and now later on the uh, the 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 woman wants to convert so he writes this non Jewish woman is already married to a Jew and by bringing her into the Jewish covenant she will get closer and closer to her husband's family and his Torah and furthermore. The children she bore and those she will bear from now on will be completely Jewish, assuming that they convert the previous children too. Behold, this is similar to the cases of Hillel and Rabbi Chiyah, who were sure that in the end they would be complete converts. 
Um, therefore, they are therefore permitted or better commanded to bring them close and have them enter into the covenant of Israel's Torah and remove the affliction of assimilation, which is an inflammatory affliction in the vineyard of the house of Israel. Right, so there's a number of obstacle, halachic obstacles to doing this conversion. One is the intention. Right, generally, if someone comes and says, I want to uh, convert, but they have ulterior motives, then we do not accept it. And here it's clear they're already married. So they're only, she's only converting for ulterior motives. Second, um, is she going to be observant uh, in all of the commandments? Uh, and if she's only gonna do it half-hearted, then uh, we should also not perform the conversion. But Rabbi Uziel would respond to both of these. He says, we have stories in the Talmud. Remember Hillel, um, someone came to him and says, please convert me on condition that it can, I can become Kohen Gadol. Bet Shammai kicked him out and Hillel said, I convert, he first converted him, taught him all the laws. While he was learning the laws, he realized he can't become Kohen Gadol. Nevertheless, he was, uh, he was happy that, uh, that Hillel converted him and he continued. So even though he started off with ulterior motives, um, Hillel saw that he was genuine and would end up uh, having proper motives. Um, Rabbi Chaya's story is uh, um, um, a, a, a student, a, a, one, of his, one of his students uh, was, uh, went to visit a prostitute and as he was climbing up the beds, his seat uh, hit him in the face and he stopped. And uh, this uh, prostitute was so impressed that his, by his self-control, he says, you know, where are you? Where do you study? And she came to the Bet Midrash and asked Rabbi Chaya, does this, does this student uh, study here? And he said, yes. And she said, I want to convert so I can marry him. And Rabbi Chaya, even though it was for ulterior motives, saw that she had uh, ultimately would have good intent, proper intention and will, would fulfill the Torah and therefore permitted it. And so, so too, even though in this case, it looks like there are ulterior motives, the truth is it's quite the opposite. They actually are already married and they have a family. So when you're living in a secular society where um, one does not actually have to convert in order to raise a family and, and uh, be, a, be a family and be married. So the fact that she wants to convert at this time shows that she is actually interested in, uh, in, being, in, in being Jewish and raising her family in a Jewish way. And for all those reasons, is not only permitted, but actually a mitzvah, because the opposite is um, assimilation and intermarriage, right? That's the situation right now. So he saw conversion as a solution to intermarriage. Furthermore, Rambam's precious words are our guides in any matter in which there is no complete transgression, such as he was suspected of relations with a non-Jew before conversion, or he was married to a non-Jewish woman who converted. For if we do not permit him to marry her after the conversion, they will remain married their whole lives while she remains not Jewish and their children will be children of intermarriage and uprooted from Israel, right? In this case, there's another problem, which is that if someone is suspected of uh, having, of, of being with a non-Jew, before the conversion, then we say we are not allowed. We, then that those that they are not allowed to convert and marry afterwards. However, the Rambam wrote a famous uh, response regarding this and says, even though that's a problem, we're gonna we're gonna pick the, the lesser of two evils, uh, and so we're going to overlook that prohibition, which is a lighter prohibition, so that they don't continue to live together as a, a Jew and a non-Jew, and so therefore we uproot that. Um, that commandment in favor of the bigger picture. And so he's following in the line of, the, of Rambam and actually in a long line of, uh, of Poskim who were lenient in, the, in regard to intermarriage um, in, in cases that are like this. Um, in other cases, he ruled the same way 
even for a couple that was not yet married, um, but he saw that they were not going to uh, separate. And so rather than intermarry, they should be converted. Regarding um, commitment to mitzvot, you see, he notes that when even when a convert comes in the first, in the first instance, we don't, we don't teach them every single mitzvah with every detail. We give them a sampling of the major ones, the minor ones, and we hope that then over the next years, they will learn the rest. And so it would be impossible for to have any conversion ever if you were going to demand 100% observance from day one. Um, and uh, uh, lastly, regarding conversion is the concept of Zera Yisrael. Uh, I'll, I'll read one paragraph that I, don't, that I didn't give you here. He says, um, not only if they are children of a Jewish mother whose children are completely Jewish, but even if they are children of a non-Jewish mother and a Jewish father, behold, they are Jewish seed and they are like lost sheep. I'm afraid that if we reject them completely by not accepting their parents for conversion, we'll be brought to judgment and it'll be said of us, those who went astray, you did not return and the lost you did not seek. He's quoting a pasuk from Yechezkel, his point is that even though uh, someone with a, a Jewish father and non-Jewish mother, even though halachically they're not defined as Jews, but still they have the Zeda Yisrael, a seed of, Judea, of, of, of uh, Jew, Judaism in them, part of the Jewish people. And therefore, it's a misvah to go out of our way to find some solution to bring them into the fold and to actually convert them. I think it's very significant that he's quoting a pasuk from Yechezkel. You know, usually pasukim from Nevi'im are not uh, uh, are not brought to bear for halachic for halacha. But I think he sees a vision of the Nevi'im as instructing uh, his his goal. And therefore, these are like lost sheep, right? They've lost their way. They're children, and uh, we, you know we have to make sure that halacha will be able to. Um, to, uh, to accommodate them. And, you know, this is uh, more relevant today than ever in Israel with uh, many examples of like this, um, uh, people from, uh, from Russia who have, who have uh, one parent who's Jewish and right now are in a state of limbo. I think if Rabbi Uziel's vision uh, was enacted, then we would uh, not have this, this problem. Um, okay, I'm almost at the end. This is a great picture right, of David Ben-Gurion kind of hopping along, trying to catch up with Rabbi Uziel. Uh, so, uh, you know, but both men, uh, great visionaries, but in, in different ways. And uh, I think that, uh, that com complement each other. And so uh, to, to conclude, uh, is a couple of uh, uh, wider statements that Rabbi Uziel said. Um, about his, his goals and visions for the nation of Israel. In his ethical will, he wrote, I have kept in, my, in the forefront of my thought the following aims, to disseminate Torah among students, to love the Torah and its precepts, Israel and its sanctity. I've emphasized love for every man and woman of Israel and for the Jewish people as a whole, love for God, the, the, love for the God, uh, Lord God of Israel, the bringing of peace between every man and woman of Israel to bring genuine peace into the home of the Jew, uh, into the whole assembly of Israel and all its classes and divisions and between Israel and his father in heaven, right? So that's the number one theme is shalom, peace and unity uh, between people and uh, between men and God as well. In addition, um, thinking about the place of the Jewish people in the wider Jewish world, he was also very, um, uh, very cognizant of that. He says each country and each nation which respects itself does not and cannot be satisfied with its narrow boundaries and limited domains. Rather, they desire to bring in all 
that is good and beautiful, that is helpful and glorious to their national cultural treasure. And they wish to give a maximal flow of their own blessing to the cultural treasure of humanity as a, as a whole and to establish a link of love and friendship among all nations for the enrichment of human storehouse of intellectual and ethical ideas and for the uncovering of secrets of nature. Happy is the country and happy is the nation that can give itself an accounting of what it has taken in from others and more importantly, of what it has given of its own to the repository of all humanity. Woe to the country and nation that encloses itself in its own four cubits and limits itself to its own narrow boundaries, lacking anything of its own contribution to humanity and lacking the tools to receive from others. All right, this reminds me of Maimonides who takes a very, um, uh, very, very importantly the, the verse that when other nations look at our laws and they, they should come and say, right, what a great and wise nation is this. Um, this impacted his halakha in, directly when it came to a question when they were opening the um, a medical school in Israel and they needed, uh, they needed uh, uh, um, uh, corpses in order to, uh, to, to perform autopsies to train doctors. And you, don't wanna, you wouldn't want to go to a surgeon that never trained, um, uh, that never trained on a body. Um, the question is, can they use bodies of Jews? And so Rav Cook actually here again said, cadavers, thank you. Um, and uh, Rav Cook says, oh, you should import bodies of non-Jews because they are of lesser sanctity and not defile the bodies of Jews. Uh, Rabbi Uziel said, uh, right, chaspa shalom to, to, to say that or even to think such a thing. All, right, all human beings are created in the image of God. And so therefore performing such autopsies are either per permitted for all or prohibited for all. And right, what would it say about this, uh, the state of Israel that uh, we, would, we only import or even have to buy cadavers from other places. And therefore he says, if you think it's necessary for medical training to save lives, that you have to uh, train doctors in this way, and it is, therefore uh, it's, it's permitted to use Jewish, Jewish bodies as well. We treat them with respect, right? We sew them up nicely, and, uh, and that way uh, we do not make a chilul Hashem, and uh, um, we should be uh, always um, a, a, a shining light to other nations when they see our laws. And lastly, uh, regarding um, Jews and Jews and Arabs, um, this is a statement that he made with uh, Rav Herzog. This is in, on December 4th, 1947. In other words, just five days after the UN partition plan, right? He wrote a, an open letter uh, to, uh, to the, the, the heads of Arab lands um, the brothers, right? We have returned to this land according, as, according to the prophets. And we say, please remember the peaceful and friendly relations that existed between us, right? During the golden age and throughout this uh, long history. And we were brothers and we, sh we shall once again be brothers working together, cordial neighborly in, uh, way in the Holy Land. And he says, remember what happened with Lot, right? And uh, you know, there was, uh, when, they had, uh, when they had some fights, they said the land is big enough for both of us. And so we should be able to share this land together uh, in, in peace. Uh, so it was no, not only among, uh, with, within Jews that his concern was always for uh, unity and peace, but really he wanted to extend that vision to our relationship with um, other nations and uh, with the world and uh, with the almighty as well. Thank you everybody for joining.
Dr. Henry, thank you so much. Um, we do have a few minutes for questions, and I actually wanted uh, to start us off by by putting two questions uh, to you, if you if you would. Um, so last week, as you know, we had a, a lecture by Professor Benny Brown uh, about the Chazan Ish, um, and I was wondering whether uh, Rabbi um, Uziel had uh, any uh, interactions with the Haredi community. I, I know he died probably just around the same time as the Chazon Ish. They were really contemporaries. Um, what was the, if there was uh, any kind of relationship, interaction, communication between them? Um, and my second question actually has to do with this last source that you offered. Um, this is a letter, but did, did Rabbi Uziel actually have kind of relations, um, uh, any sort of cooperation working with? Um, the Islamic community, the Arab leaders of the time. Yeah, okay, fantastic. I'll start with the, the, the second question. Um, there's a famous scene in 1921 uh, there, during a battle, a scuffle between Jews and Arabs. He actually put on Arab garb and he went to the front line right in the middle of, uh, of, the, of the fighting and he spoke in Arabic, uh, addressing both sides and saying, you know, we can get along and actually stop the fighting for, for that day. So, and I, I know at least of that, but I don't know if he had any more formal uh, meetings with Arab leaders. Um, I'm not sure if he ever, uh, what, what his interactions were with the, with the Haredi community um, uh, or the Chazonish, but I was thinking when I was listening to uh, Benny Brown last week that um, I think a lot of his, that, that the approach of the Chazonish in some ways reminded me of some of the Second Temple sectarianism uh, in two ways. First. Uh, as, um, as you know, the sectarians didn't like legal fictions, right? They saw uh, halakha as in a, real, a realism, uh, a stance of realism. Um, so, you know, there's really very little flexibility because it has to accord with nature. Um, whereas uh, I think um, other halakhists like Rabbi Uziel uh, appreciated the values of legal fiction and saw it more in, um, uh, in a nom nominalistic point of view. Um, and uh, then uh, regarding, you know, uh, cooperating with the army, where uh, Chazonish said um, that if you're drafted to the army, better to, to die, right? You had Egbal Yavor, and seeing the, the Jewish government in the same way as he would a, an oppressive uh, non-Jewish government was really astounding, because like that's how, um, that's the definition of sectarianism. That's why the Dead Sea sect, you know, it's not only do we disagree with uh, what the Maccabees are doing, but we call for their destruction and uh, we cannot cooperate at all. And Rabbi Uziel is exactly the opposite. When he was asked the question, you know, hey, we, we can get out of, the, uh, out, of the, um, uh, out of the army, should we? And he said, no, absolutely not, right? That is our duty is to join in um, and to build, to, to build the state of Israel. So I think that was a lot of contrast uh, between those, the, these two figures. Thank you very much. Uh, we have time for one or two questions. What is the date of the answer of Rabbi Ovadia, the um, tshuva of Rabbi Ovadia? Do you know by any chance? Yeah, I guess I don't have it on here, but I, I can look it up. I'm not, I don't know offhand. Because what I had in my mind oh, is- Oh, here it says 5711. So because... that'll be, right, that'll be uh, 50, uh, 1951. Oh, I see. So I'm wrong apparently because I had in my mind when was the big waves of, of Aliyah of the Mizrahim to start with, because yeah. this might be a different, make a difference. Right. Before, before the big uh, waves of Aliyah from the Eastern, you know, from North Africa and so on, um, the Ashkenazi element had a different uh, weight to it. Right. 
Yeah, I could see that. Uh, so he, since he wrote that during the lifetime of Rabbi Uziel, which is even mm -hmm. more bold to, to yeah. disagree with him so publicly. Yeah, I understand. Thank mm -hmm. you. Okay, regarding the poll test, I, I didn't mean to say anything political about that. Or just, uh, you know, just an encouragement to have informed uh, decision uh, when we vote. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't mean any offense by that. What was the overlap between Nabuziel and Obadi, Rav Obadi Yosef? They seem to have such different, uh, different ways of, of dealing with halacha. Right. Well, I mean, in, in, in many ways they are, they, they, they do come from the same school. Um, Ravad Yosef is uh, uh, certainly a, a complex and very, very significant figure. Um, he's born in 1920, so uh, he's still a rather young man when Rabbi Uziel died, and uh, he spent a lot of time in Egypt uh, before, before coming to Israel. Um, I think the, uh, the sense, the flexibility in, flexibility in halacha, um, making sure that halacha be uh, address all, all Jews, wherever uh, they are uh, in, you know, in, their, in their religious background, was something that they had in common. Uh, you know, not, not giving rulings only for the yeshiva crowd, um, but seeing uh, the, the unity of all Israel, whether they are uh, very religious or not yet religious or only do some things once in a while. Um, so I think there is a there is a commonality in that respect, um, but I guess it's more in the uh, political uh, arena of uh, um, maintaining distinctions between Sfaradi and Ashkenazim, or looking toward an, a state in which wherever you came from, now we're all in Israel together, and trying to lessen the, those distinctions. Uh, it's it's really it really is a tough question because you know what what happens uh, sometimes when you want un, un, unity is you get the lowest common denominator of everyone. I mean I find that myself that here um, I'm, I'm in Brooklyn we follow the uh, the Aleppo the Aleppo uh, Syrian traditions and we follow them very strongly like we know them very very well and we know the old uh, songs and customs and very particular details and that gives. Um, uh, gives our synagogue a, a lot of uh, rich, uh, thick uh, thickness. Uh, whereas when you're getting together and saying, "Okay, we're only going to do all the only, we sing only the songs that we all know," you end up with just uh, you know Mipiel and Habibi, um, which are not my favorite songs. Because so uh, so I, you know I feel a la that lacking when I go to an Adot Hamizrach synagogue in Israel. Uh, so you know I think the uh, for diaspora. Um, uh, I appreciate that we maintain those uh, those old distinctions. I think in Israel, it's not it's not realistic that that can be kept for a long time uh, because everybody's being educated and marrying each other. I think in Israel, we have to hope for new creativity and new ways, which you see happening. The way old PU team make it into pop popular music, and you know, Israel will be that that place of uh, of great creativity where these competing visions will play out over, you know, over our lifetimes and, and long into the future. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll see in the end who won. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Rabbi Uziel's voice is there. And I hope that it will be uh, an important voice for the people of Israel for many generations. What did Rab, uh, Rabbi Uziel think about uh, Kitniot? Kitniot, I don't know. I don't, I, have, I, don't, I don't remember seeing him write about that. But that's the big issue. <laughs> Right. There, there have been uh, bigger uh, issues for our community in the past, and, and I'm guessing there might uh, even in the present and in the future be bigger issues than Kitneo. Um, 
in any event, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hidri. This was this was a fascinating lecture, and I'm sure we all learned a lot. I know I know I did. Um, please all join us next week, where Rabbi Ellie Fisher, uh, who's right there on our screen, uh, will be talking about the Hassan Sofer. And we are also uh, working on a, a sequel series, uh, hopefully for after Pesach, and hopefully we'll be dealing with Avad Yosef and 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 other uh, and other. Uh, recent-ish uh, post game. So thank you all for joining us and looking forward to seeing you all next.